Hello, and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Debbie Osborne. Debbie is a social worker turned lawyer and foster parent who has authored a book recently published titled Raising Other People's Children. Debbie lives in Woodstock, Georgia. Welcome, Debbie, to the AOI podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. I am very pleased that you could join our podcast series, and I'm interested in hearing more about you and what you have to share with us. Typically, to get started, I ask the interviewee to please share a little bit about themselves. So I will do that with you as well. If you could please share about yourself and how is it that you got connected with the foster care system? Well, it started many years ago, I guess, actually, when I was a child, my parents were very involved in their church youth ministry and various other youth organizations, and they just gravitated towards at-risk youth. So I sort of grew up with a heart for kids who didn't quite fit the system. I actually was one of those kids who didn't quite fit the system. I didn't have any huge problems, but I just never quite fit in, never quite followed what was expected of me. So I understood that sense of kids looking around and thinking, this doesn't make sense. And why are people following the system? It's just crazy when something else would be so much more sensible. So that sort of led me into my time as a social worker where I worked well with the kids and enjoyed it, but I burned out. I just got tired of dipping out the ocean with a teaspoon. So I retreated to law school, but I still kept that passion for helping kids find families and being a family for kids. I was single and, you know, wanted to have something in my life besides just my job and my dog. And so so that's when I signed up and I've done various levels of foster care, depending on what my job duties allowed and what the program that I was working with at the time had available. Mm -hmm. So this particular population of foster youth, was that a group that you were exposed to when your parents were working with at-risk youth or did you discover that along the way, like once you were a social worker? No, my parents were involved in, again, at risk. It's by definition, the teenagers who are in foster care are going to be at risk in disrupted families and kids who suffer from trauma. I had had experience with that. And then my mother, the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years of her working career, she worked in a youth detention center. And we did a lot of volunteer work there during my high school and college days. So I was just exposed to that. My sister and I joke that, you know, we can say truthfully, if not quite accurately, that we grew up going in and out of youth detention centers (laughs) on a regular basis. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And I would imagine that in youth detention centers that a significant percentage of those young people are a high high percentage. Yeah. Spent time in foster care. Mm -hmm. That's one of the problems that disruptive family and that lack of any sort of stability in their lives leads them into a lot of delinquent behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, you became a foster parent. How long ago was that that you started and are you still foster parenting? 
Well, I started, it was, gosh, 25 years ago and did it consistently. Well, off and on, when I got married 15 years ago, we took a break until about five years ago when one of my former foster kids hit a really bad patch and we inherited a foster grandchild, if you will. And that placement ended fairly recently, aged out, and the child was able to go back to biological family. That actually was a difficult placement for us, and we're just taking a break right now. I don't know if we'll get back into foster care. We're both reaching retirement age with our jobs, and I don't know if we're reaching retirement income, but we're looking at it. <laughs> um, and actually, we are right now, we're drifting more towards looking for a mentoring organization that helps kids who have aged out of the system, who don't necessarily need placement, but they need the mentoring. And so our kids are all adults and we're providing a lot of that mentoring to them. And we're seeing there's just a lot of kids who've aged out who just, they just need somebody to walk them through, what do I do with this job challenge? And where do I spend Thanksgiving and those kinds of issues? And my husband's family and our stepkids have always been extremely welcoming and very inclusive of all the foster kids and former foster kids that I've brought into the family. So that extended safety net works very well for that sort of situation. Right. And how many young people would you say have you worked with, or I should say, who have been with you in your home? Well, I'm not one of those who kept track. And I did a lot of interim and emergency foster care placements for a few days at a time while they found long term. I have two girls. They were not related to each other and they stood with me at different times, but they were long term placements that have become part of the family. And then I would say a couple of dozen of others that were in either respite care, which is where they had a placement, but the placement needed a break. And so the kids came to me on weekends or when the family had to travel for business or something like that and emergency placements. So it would be less than 30, but only two long-term. Okay. And what were the ages of the young people you worked with? Did you work with any age or was it a particular age that you liked to have? Well, I took any age, but I was really not well set up for younger kids. I've never had biological kids. And my personality, I just work better with older, more self-sufficient kids. I'm very close to my nieces and nephews. My brother and sister both have kids. But I always joked with my brother and sister and other friends that until their kids were old enough to argue with me, they were just not interesting. And so <laughs> they were cute and adorable, but fairly boring um, <laughs> and, until they became verbal. So I have just always gravitated towards older kids. And that actually worked well because in the foster care system, there are plenty of other people who will take cute young kids and not a lot of people who will take teenagers right. or preteens. Well, it's kind of a daunting oh, situation, yeah. right? It's because Yeah, their personalities and their habits and their desires, they're much further along than when they're little. And so they're their own selves already. And so 
it's just more challenging also because of the potential, I hate to use the word baggage, but you know, that kind of that, the, all of the issues, whether it's emotional or what have you that come with them, the older they are. So it's daunting. I can understand on one hand, why people don't gravitate toward that age group. But on the other hand, I also see the result of that, which is so many young people having the age out of the system. The results of trauma are so incredibly devastating for kids, and they have to live through it. And at the same time, this is what's so frustrating, working with teenagers, it is just wired in their genetics and their developmental history to just push back against every rule and sure. every boundary. It's what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's their... Do. You know, when you're talking about child development, that's how they're deciding who they are. Right, exactly. It's normal. It's expected. It's actually part of healthy development, but you add the trauma onto it and it has some very unhealthy aspects to it. And it's not really something that the kids can control and it can just be exhausting. Yes. So I think that, you know, of course, people who are going into that foster parenting situation with older youth, uh, teenagers, <laughs> they need to be prepared. Thank you. And so you have worked with, it sounds like all ages, but you really gravitated toward the older youth. Yes. And I happen to know that you have actually captured your thoughts and feelings, I would imagine, from all of your experiences in a book, correct? Yes. yes. I wrote the book. It came out in the spring. And it's really the lessons that my kids taught me that I wish I had been able to learn from a book. It's called Raising Other People's Children. And it's what foster parenting taught me about bringing together a blended family. That's the subtitle. It came out of a series of conversations I had with friends who were step parents. And whenever I was talking to them and I realized that they were making a lot of the same mistakes that I had made when I first became a foster parent. And then I had some friends who were foster parents who were making some of the same mistakes that I had made. And I realized that by the time I got married 15 years ago, I married a man with five children, although only two of them were at home at the time. And I realized that blending that family was much easier for me than it was for my friends and was much easier for me than it would have been because I had already learned so many strong lessons from being a foster parent. So many of the principles apply to both situations because, for example, one of the stories I tell is Early in my marriage, my husband's ex-wife asked for custody of the two boys, and we were talking to the younger son, trying to get his opinion, and he, of course, wasn't going to say anything that sounded like he was taking sides. We didn't want him to take sides. We just wanted to know where to put our resources. It was something he didn't want us to do. So my husband finally said, well, look, if you had a magic wand, what would your life look like? The boy, he didn't hesitate at all. He said, if I had a magic wand, you and mom would be back together. And then he got this really concerned look on his face and looked over at me and said, no insult, Debbie, you and the dogs would be right next door. (laughs) (laughs) And, And by then, you know, I realized it wasn't about me. It didn't hurt my feelings at all. And he and I were very close. We remained very close to this day. We had bonded a lot by then. So I knew that it wasn't about me. It was just that 
in all these situations with both foster care and step parenting, from the kid's perspective, I'm not the person who's supposed to be in their lives and I never will be. And that's okay. So I can never replace their parents. And that's what I've told my stepsons on lots of occasions. I'm not your mother, but you are my sons. This is a one-way commitment that I'm making to the kids. And I'm, they have a mother who loves them very much. And I'm never going to be able to make a complete replacement. And that's something when you're working with kids who are aging out of the system, it's so very easy for us to want to have a relationship that fills our needs too. But we have to be willing to understand we're the adult. This is one way we are giving whatever this child needs, we are giving it to them with boundaries, of course. I mean, every healthy relationship has a boundary, but within those healthy boundaries, it's not a reciprocal relationship. We are adults. They are not adults. And we are not going to have an adult relationship with them until they can become adults. Right. Do you think it's easier to be a foster parent and then a step parent versus the other way around? Are there lessons learned from working with foster youth that you think enable you to be a step parent, like you're saying, a little more prepared than the other way around? It's hard for me to know because I don't really have a good database for making that comparison. I think that it was helpful for me because it lowered my expectations. You know, I think a lot of my friends who are step parents, they want to have the roses and the butterflies and the unicorns, and they don't quite understand that it takes a while to get there and that we just have to give kids the time and the space to accept us. And that means we have to give them the time and space to reject us but we still have a job to take care of them. So we have to learn how to respond. For example, when a kid says, you're not my parent, I don't have to listen to you. We have to learn how to give a variation on, yes, I'm not your parent and I'm sorry your parent isn't here, but I care about you and I'm responsible for keeping you safe. And these are the house rules. So we have to say those things in that order and in a progression, and we have to keep saying it. As a foster parent, I think, again, my social work background helped me because I think a lot of foster parents really have the well-meaning intent of trying to protect the kids from their biological family. But there is a tie there, that biological connection. It's almost primal. It probably is primal. It's on a level that you cannot reach with logic. And we just have to respect that and help them develop the best relationship, healthy relationship they can with their biological parents. And we have to be willing to make sacrifices in our emotional state to be willing to get them there. In that sense, I think being a foster parent prepared me for having lower expectations, which meant that when I have a good relationship, and I do have a really good relationship with all my stepsons, that I was able to give them the time and the space to build the kind of relationship that they want. And whenever they do manage to remember my birthday, it's a plus. And and when they don't, that's just the way it goes, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'd like to talk about your book. Okay. 
I know you have some themes and some concepts that are well worth discussing in this conversation. The first thing I wanted to ask about, I know that you talk about logical consequences in your book, and I'd like to bring that out into this conversation you know, in the context of working with older teenagers in foster care. And, you know, first of all, what are logical consequences and why use them? What's the benefit? The doctrine of logical consequences is figuring out what happens in the real world. When a child does X in the real world, then what happens? It just logically. And with older kids, They're getting to age out. And one of the things that I think is so incredibly important with helping kids, particularly older kids, is figuring out a way for them to suffer the logical consequences without our fingerprints being on them so that we can warn them and say, if you do this, then this will happen. And we just let it happen because we don't learn by listening to other people. None of us does. When we get older, maybe we do, but until our brain develops into our 20s and 30s, the only way we learn is by running into brick walls. So the trick with logical consequences is engineering logical consequences that are safe, but that don't have our fingerprints on them so that the kids can't blame us for them. It's just the way the world works. What would be an example With younger kids, I would always say, look, your grades are your responsibility. So if you need help, you let me know. And then I would try to make logical consequences more real to them. For example, I've always used allowances. Now, I've always given kids actually a fairly hefty allowance, but they were responsible for using that to take care of, for example, younger kids. They had to take care of all of their entertainment out of that. With teenagers, they had to buy their clothes out of that. You know, they may think, oh, I'm getting a couple hundred dollars a month. But then when I say, well, you got to buy underwear out of that, and you know, I'll take care of shampoo, but you got to buy makeup and these sort of rules. Then I was able to say, and if you don't have good grades in real life, you don't make good money. So here's how we're going to For an A on your report card, you get this amount of money. And for a C, you get one-fourth this amount of money. And if you get an F, then it pulls this much money out of your allowance. How much money they got in their allowance every month was directly related to what their grades were. Because that's the way it works in the real world. Right. Now, I would imagine you might have youth, though, who aren't motivated by money, and they're like, I don't care. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, then, you know, that's one of those, it made me happy keeping my money. But then then you have to work on other kinds of different logical consequences. So I had a child one time, and I talk about this in my book, he was going to quit school. And, you know, we did all the discussions and all everything, and he was just in, intent on quitting school. So I said, okay, the rules are you can only live with me if you're in school or contributing to household income. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I call it paying rent, but I don't actually take money from them. So if you're going to quit school, you're going to have to get a job and you're going to have to have a job before I let you quit school. So let's start looking to get a job. 
And I drove him around to everywhere, made him find the jobs, made him look for them, made him fill out the applications. Sure enough, he couldn't find a job as a high school dropout that would keep him in the style that he was accustomed to. But I never said a word. I just said, if you can find it, this is what we'll do. And he finally decided he really needed to finish those last two years of high school. He didn't have to say I was right in saying that because I had never said one way or the other. I just said, this is how the world works. And fortunately, he had enough employers who were saying to him, look, you're just going to have to call me back in two years because I got other high school graduates here that I can hire instead. So that was an example of where I just let him see the real world consequences while it was still in a safe way to do that. Again, with different kids, you give them different. I had a very young child, six or seven, grandchild that insisted on being rude to me. Long story. But I finally just said, look, just so you know, I don't do favors or nice things for people who are rude to me. And that didn't make any point at at that point in time. But, you know, two or three days later, she came in and she wanted something from me. And I said, no, remember, I told you, I don't I don't do things for people who are rude to me. So you'll have to do without this. And after about three weeks, you know, she apologized (laughs) and her attitude changed. With our middle school, one of our children was in middle school. I found out that he had not been doing his homework like he was supposed to. And so I told him, I said, well, we've got trust issues now. He didn't really know what that meant. I just kind of let it go until later that night, about seven o'clock. I said, well, it's time to go to bed. He said, wait, what do you mean? I, I don't go to bed for another two hours. I said, well, I know, but I'm going upstairs and I don't feel like coming back downstairs to make sure that your light's out. And so you need to turn it out now while I can see it because we have trust issues and everything for the I don't know, the next three or four days, he'd asked to go, if you could go down to his friend's house. I said, well, if, if I could trust you, you could, but we can't trust you. So you'll have to stay here, here where we can keep an eye on you. And he had not realized how much of his life was built on trust until he lost our trust and we kept saying no. And then he finally said, well, when are you not going to have trust issues with me anymore? My husband said, well, it's, it's not the way trust works. You have to build it back. We'll give you some little things and see how you do. And I think the whole exercise, you know, you can't go on forever with kids. I think the whole exercise took like seven to 10 days before he was back to where he wanted to be, which is about the right time for kids, you know, to earn it back and build it back, the trust. He says he's never forgotten that. Actually, he says I scarred his soul and he's <laughs> forgotten it. But... <laughs> But but that's just an example of if I can't trust you, then you can't do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Right. I can't trust you to follow through on your responsibilities. I can't right. trust you to you know, do what you say you're going to do, those types of things. So if they can learn that through this type of consequence, through this type of activity, then like you're saying, it goes so much farther than just talking to them about it. Exactly. Exactly. It, it illustrates it for mm-hmm. them. Right, right. Well, going back to the utility bills, because I wanted to hit on that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very curious where you were going to go with the whole utility bill concept as opposed to rent. Well, yes, that was one of the, whenever I say to kids, you have to be in school or pay rent. I don't actually want to be their landlord. I don't actually want to fight with them about money. 
So my husband and I have done over the, and I did this before I was, when I had older kids, older foster kids before I was married. I just hand over one of the utility bills and say, this is now your responsibility. And I explain to him, here's how it works. See, here's the due date. Here's what you have to pay. And if you run short of money or you have any problems, talk to me, but this is your responsibility. And I usually start with a bill that matters more to them than me, which these days is the cable bill. And it's now between them and the cable company. I'm completely out of it. And again, it goes back to my principle of it's a logical consequence, but my fingerprints are off of it. And what I do for me, of course, is I have a backup plan so that if they don't get it paid, I have you know, I have my, my cell phone bill with tethering so I can still get to the internet, (laughs) but they have to deal with it if they don't get the bill paid. And so it's a glide path, you know, they're not completely out on their own, but they're learning how utility bills work. And it's between them and the, whatever utility bill they have. Now, you know, I do have to have a backup plan because, they aren't going to get it right the first few times. So we had one of our kids who just got the gas cut off. And fortunately, it was during the warm weather. So the only problem was we didn't have any hot water in the house for showers. And my husband and I went and got a membership at the local gym and took our showers there. Never said a word. We just got our backup plan. I think the other kids in the house had plenty to say. Well, that's, I was just wondering if you had other youth in the house, they would be putting pressure. Yes, yes, they would be. And I just said, let me know what you need for me to work this out. And just left it completely up to them to figure it out and pay the penalty and do whatever. In that case, it was, I think they had the money. They just weren't paying attention. And just ignored the cutoff date, didn't think they really meant it or something like that. So, and you know, we have never had that problem with that child. We never had any of those problems ever again. And that's just an example of something that it happens. It's just the way the world works. My fingerprints weren't on it. And of course, I have to keep my mouth shut. I'm a lawyer. I can give people advice from now until (laughs) doomsday. But the hardest thing for me to ever do is to not say, I told you so, or to just say to them, if you need help, let me know. Otherwise, I will trust you to take care of this and then not say anything else. It's really hard. Right. To me, it seems like the things that are key to this kind of approach working, patience, consistency, and being aware of the opportunities when they come along. Yes. Or engineering the opportunities. You know, that's why whenever we talk about doing allowances, that's one of the areas where we engineer it because we just say, look, you're going to have to handle a budget and buy your own clothes someday. So let's start now. And finding ways for them to contribute. I mean, this is, I have our now adult children who come home from time to time in between apartments or whatever. And I think it's incredibly important for them psychologically to be contributing to the family and to not just feel like they're back to being kids again. And there are some things that, for example, I've never made my kids buy their own groceries because I just don't want to deal with what's their groceries and what's mine. 
Um, oh yeah, that's true. There's, or there's a practical side to this. It is. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I just I want low maintenance consequences that don't take a lot of energy from me, but I do make them go pick up and buy the groceries. If I'm going to spend the money, they have to spend their time. It's their job to get the stuff that's on the grocery list to stay within the budget. We use a grocery credit card, you know, has very low balance or low limit on it. We just use it and I just hand it over and say, here's the list, here's the card, get us stocked up again by such and such a date. It's how they can contribute. And I just think that's very important for kids to start feeling like adults is to start feeling like they are contributing to something in the family. I think one of the challenges that so many young people, older young people in foster care face is they might be with foster parents or in a group home situation where they're not allowed to do anything. Oh, yeah. Yes. And that's really hard. Fortunately, again, my personality is such that I'm happy to delegate things, but it is hard when I see kids making bad decisions that I know they're going to regret and I can't stop them, but we have to let them make those mistakes. And I have this conversation with friends of mine all the time about, you know, they're their kids are not doing well with their grades and they're convinced the kids are going to barely make it out of high school, not get a college diploma, and they're going to end up dead in a gutter somewhere because they miss out on college. And I keep saying, no, no, I've, I have paid car mechanics a heck of a lot more money than I have paid counselors with master's degrees over the mm-hmm. years. <laughs> so yep. Yep. you let your child find something, some trade that they enjoy and, and they will they will make a living and they will do fine. And we just have to let go and let them learn. So I have taught myself and try to get my friends to ask two questions. One is, what is realistically the worst that is going to happen? You know, if you don't help your kid on this, if you don't take lunch to your kid who has left it at home, the worst that's going to happen is they're going to be hungry. And that's not so terrible. Now, again, with kids with trauma, you know, if you have a child who's had food insecurity, that might trigger a whole lot of other issues. And so with foster kids with particular trauma, we may have to take their lunch to school for that kid. But most kids, the worst that's going to happen is they're going to be starving when they come home from school. But, you know, that experience may remind them to take their lunch the next time. And so if you ask that realistically, not in your own imagination, what's the worst problem, but realistically, what's the worst that can happen? And then the second thing is to realize that the risk is lower now than it ever will be again in the future. A child will learn from flunking out. It's better for them to do that in grammar school than middle school. It's better to do it in middle school than in high school. Today, the risks are lower than they will be tomorrow or next month or the next year. Mm-hmm. That's a good way of looking at it. So today is the best day of all of the other options for them to learn that, whatever the lesson is they need to learn. And we just have to get it through our heads. They will not learn it from listening to us. And that is hard for me as a lawyer to admit. Yeah. But, they'll listen to their peers, their friends, yes. before they'll listen to adults. Yes. Often. Yes, often. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I remember a conversation with one of my daughters. She said, I don't even remember what it was, but she said something. I looked at her and I said, I, 
I remember saying that to you three or four years ago. So I guess that means I was right. She said, oh, no, just because I believe it now doesn't mean you were right back then. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's funny. Well, everything you're describing to me with the consequences and the glide path and all of that, this sounds like just good parenting skills, not specifically unique to raising other people's children. So what is it that you share in your book that really ties the strategies that you're suggesting as being particularly helpful with other people's children or what other elements are there that would help people who work with the young people in foster care? The effects of trauma. That is the main thing that is different from parenting your biological children and other people's children. Even with children of divorce, that is a trauma. It's one that we have normalized and we like to tell ourselves that kids are resilient and kids are resilient, but it is still a trauma that we have to recognize. A child, either through divorce or death, they have lost their original biological family. And that is a trauma that has effects on it. And so that is the difference between raising your own biological children and raising other people's children, is that by definition, they have suffered a trauma or else we wouldn't be there. That was one of the lessons I had to learn as a foster parent is that if the world worked the way it should, I wouldn't know any of my kids and that I'm there because they have suffered a loss. We have to recognize that, but then we have to not let them stay mired there. And that is one of the big issues in our society right now is being a victim has currency. And whenever something has currency, then obviously you want to amass as much of that currency as you can. I've had kids, this last placement we had, the foster grandchild, one of the conversations we had, I was saying, well, you say you want to go to college, but you got to get good grades for it. And the response was, oh, no, no, I've got enough victim points to write a killer essay to get into college. I said, what do you mean victim points? Well, you know, dad deserted us and mom got addicted to some prescription issues. And now I live with these old people who don't understand me. So I've I've got plenty of victim points. And I think that's just kind of how our culture is. If you get enough victim points, then you're stuck in a place and you'll never get out of it. And that can be very devastating for our kids. So we have to acknowledge the trauma, but then we have to empower them to get past it. They're getting um, conflicting reinforcement. Yes. Yes. On one hand, they're getting reinforced to move on and be independent. On the other hand, they're getting reinforcement to kind of wallow in their victimhood. Yes, exactly. And that the system is geared against them and will never be geared where they can get out of it. And I understand we can't just ignore that. I mean, the kids have suffered trauma. And so we have to pay attention to it and we have to acknowledge it. But if we just stop there, then we're not doing any good for our kids at all. Right, exactly. Well, I wish we had a whole other hour to talk about this because this is really interesting. I think, though, we're going to probably have to think about wrapping up our conversation. But I did want to ask, I mean, I think I've got a sense of who your target audience is for your book. But, you know, let me just ask you, who would you recommend read your book, Raising Other People's Children? 
foster parents, step parents, kinship care, anyone who is raising a child outside of their biological family. There are a lot of variations on those kinds of situations, but there are several themes that run through it, starting with the fact that we're not the people who are supposed to be there from the child's perspective and how you accept that and recognize it and build a wonderful relationship anyway. Mm-hmm. I could see mentors. Oh, yes. Yes. Getting benefit from this book as well as, you know, people who work in organizations that support young people aging out of foster care, really in any way, I would imagine there are nuggets in there that they could take away. It's very hard for organizations to step back and let kids make mistakes because unfortunately it's my profession of lawyers that has created liability for those organizations, but we need to find ways to let them learn from real life. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, I think that your next book could be focused on the whole question of this new culture that we're in and how do you help young people and empower them to move past and manage through the reinforcements that they're getting for being victims. Yes. And how to to not stay mired in their victimhood. Yes. I think there could be, you know, benefit in recognizing it, acknowledging the traumas that they've had and how it might be impacting them. But it should be, at least from my perspective, I was in foster care myself too. Mm-hmm. I took it as what made me stronger. Yes. Because I learned so much from it and I was resilient in dealing with it. And so I saw it as making me stronger, not weaker. Yes. Exactly. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. I think it's Except bears. Thing. Bears will kill Except you. Except bears, right. <laughs> Isn't that the joke? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Don't, don't poke the dragon. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's probably time that we wrap up. So thank you so much, Debbie, for talking with us today about your perspective, your background, and the book that you've written. So again, for those who are listening, the title of your book is? Raising Other People's Children. Raising Other People's Children by Debbie Osborne. You can find that on Amazon? Yes, you can find it on Amazon. Or if you just look for raisingotherpeopleschildren.com and there are links there to Amazon and to my individual websites and blogs. Fantastic. So hopefully everyone will go check that out. I thank you very much, Debbie, and I wish you all the best with thank everything you. that you're doing <laughs> and you. really appreciate that you've participated in our podcast series. Thank you very much for the opportunity. You're very welcome. All right. For those who have listened to the podcast to the very end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple weeks or so. You can find them on our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and look for the podcast link. But you can also find us on pretty much any of the places that you find other podcasts. So thank you very much for listening. Until next time. Bye.